Hey everyone, just have a quick preface to this episode. Uh, we are talking about the film Lost Highway, uh, which is a David Lynch film. Uh, we talk a lot about themes of the exploitation of women and the objectification of women, um, and that is a huge theme of the film. Uh, and I know that's a pretty hard subject to talk about, especially uh, in this uh, tiring news cycle. Uh, so heads up for that. Also, uh, we are talking about the David Lynch film, and by doing that, we also talk candidly about other Lynch works, uh, including the new season of Twin Peaks. Uh, so just a heads up, if you haven't seen all of Lynch's stuff, including the new Twin Peaks, we'll be spoiling some of that as well. Uh, and that's it. I hope you enjoyed the episode. It was a great discussion. Uh, Joel Bacco was on, and it was a great chat, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks. Fireside Friends. This is episode 40. My name is Alan, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Ryan Prasad. I'm here. Hello. Hi. How's it going, Ryan? Going all right. Very good. Um, we have a very special guest today. I'm excited to announce um, on this episode of Fireside Friends, we are joined by the wonderful Joel Bacco from uh, Lost in the Movies and uh, pretty much the best Twin Peaks and David Lynch critic like online at this point, I think. Uh, I'll take it, but no, I don't know if that's true, but I'll take it. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna bestow upon you that point. You're one of my favorites. Okay, I'll, I'll accept. Hey guys, how are you doing? Uh, we are great. It's wonderful to have you on. Um, who better to talk about a David Lynch movie than than you? Uh, Joel, introduce yourself. What do you, what do you do? What's your whole like situation? Well, I, I write online. I do videos and and other sorts of posts on uh, lostinthemovies.com. That's my site that I started almost 10 years ago. And um, in recent years, I've been writing a lot about Twin Peaks. In fact, I think I looked um, at the site today, and every post this year, except for maybe two or three, has been about Twin Peaks. So (laughs) it's definitely sort of taken over this year since it came back on Showtime. Um, And the main thing that I've done that, that I think probably people have seen more than anything else that I've done is the journey through Twin Peaks video series where it's like an analysis of it using clips and narration and stuff like that. Yeah, we're definitely going to link to that in the show notes because that's a great that's a great uh, a video series. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I, I've always found Lynch's work really fascinating to critique. And that's part of why we're doing this episode today. Um, and and you've been around for a while, like 10 years, um, I guess. Is it so? You still like what do you what do you think is what do you think has changed about both the way that you've like written and and created work as a critic and also like what has changed about Lynch's work tracking stuff like Twin Peaks throughout the years? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I started the blog in two thousand eight, and at that point, Inland Empire was a couple years old. And actually, within two months of starting the blog. I watched uh, Lost Highway, Inland Empire, and Twin Peaks, and Firewalk with Me 
uh, all for the, and Wild at Heart all for the first time. And I wrote about all of them on there except Wild at Heart. So I kind of got my fresh reactions to a lot of the stuff. Um, not so much Twin Peaks, the show. I had to watch it again to write about it. But the movies, um, the first time I watched them, I kind of wrote about them. So that, so you know, that that was interesting. Inland Empire was the newest, but then for I guess eight years that was or nine years actually it still remained his newest film like he didn't make anything in between so what sort of changed with his work over time i guess has been more perspectives or popularity or things like that but the work itself until the return was sort of this intact body of work um so that's kind of that's been kind of interesting to suddenly get 18 hours of new lynch material after a decade of just having really i mean not much more than 18 hours in terms of his feature films um, I have a question regarding this. Uh, when Inland Empire was new, because I'm a youngin, I wasn't paying attention to the movies. <laughs> did it look like garbage back then too? You mean like visually? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I mean like it was. Well, I, I think. I mean, it's an intentional choice to record with that camera and all that. Yeah. But did people react? Have that same reaction that they would probably do now? I'm just like, ugh, God. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it was shot on a PD-150, which was not is not an HD camera. And at yeah. that point, they did have HD in 2006 or whatever. It was, yeah. I think, pretty new, but like 1080 was something that, you know, you, you could use at the time. And um, so it was very much a conscious choice. People always mm-hmm. say it's like sort of a consumer-grade camera. That's not really true in my memory or experience, because... Um, I think that would be more like a mini DV camera or something. So it was like a, a little better than that, but it was not, it's not HD. Um, you know, I think it was like a, a three chip camera that was like kind of the height of technology before HD. And, but right. this was after, so it was already a little low. Well, I mean, then again, though, he did start shooting it. I think he started shooting it in like 2002. I think he shot it sort of like a racer head for like three or four years. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm not totally conversant on the history of digital and everything, but I mean, um, right. I guess we're was it Attack of the Clones was digital, and that was like 2002. So um, I don't know if he had. I, I don't know if it was out of that's his that budget, movie's though. ugly in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uniquely disgusting. Yeah, you you mentioned um, having 18 hours of new Lynch work to just suddenly enjoy, and like Ryan and I, while the return was airing, just kept being like. This is amazing. Every week we get a whole hour of just like pure this, and it's it's a gift. And now that it's over, it's like it was it was here and gone. I loved having that. I've never like Dave Lynch has. Uh, I was not paying attention to cinema in when Inland Empire came out. So this was the first thing where I was like conscious of his works and paying attention. That I was like, oh my god, and I'm gonna get new ones every week. It's like incredible. The return was such a thing. Yeah, this was really the first Lynch that I experienced as it happened too i would say because i i think i had opportunities to see i guess the last three films because even straight story i remember was like at a film festival near me and i knew about it and i didn't go and i was kind of kicked myself for that and then maholland drive came out and i remember seeing commercials on tv and thinking and not knowing that i don't i think the only lynch i'd seen at that point was the elephant man but just looking like wow this looks like something i'd really like to see and then i just waited till it was on dvd and then even Inland Empire, when I'd already seen a few Lynch films, I kind of, and I was in New York, I could have seen it because that was, you know, it wasn't playing everywhere, but it was playing there. 
and I missed that too. So the return was kind of my first chance to really take advantage of actually watching new Lynch at the same time as everyone else. Now I'm just hoping he makes another film so I can <laughs> finally see one yeah. in a theater for the first time. Oh you God. Know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Truly the dream. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll, we'll definitely loop back around to Lynch's other works. I want to uh, get right into the film that we're discussing for this episode though. Uh, is everybody else ready to get into it? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. All right. We'll be right back to discuss Lost Highway. Funny how secrets travel. I start to believe if I were to leave. This guy, the man, chains his hands held high. Cruise me, Lord. Cruise me, babe. A blonde beneath, beyond, beyond, beyond. No return. No return. of Fireside Friends, we watched David Lynch's 1997 film, Lost Highway. It was directed by Lynch. It was also written by him in addition to some co-writing credits from Barry Gifford. Um, Joel, what did you think of Lost Highway? I know you've seen this film before, but what was your like sort of overall opinion of it on this most recent rewatch? Um, I mean, I enjoyed it as always. I, I think it's uh, probably one of my favorite Lynch films. On this rewatch, I think a couple things. One was this was probably the first time I watched it since The Return, so I was noticing things that um, were both similar and different. Things mm-hmm. that were that were kind of cut from a different cloth um, than The Return. Um, and then the other thing, I think, and this was something going into it that I had on my mind, was just because of all the news recently, especially the stuff out of Hollywood, which this is mm. sort of tangentially i guess it's more you know uh san fernando valley like uh like the porn industry maybe a little bit more but it's it's you know film industry it's la it's that type of milieu and it deals with violence against women and exploitation of women and sort of these men's um the the games they play and the justifications they use and things like that so with the harvey weinstein stuff and then what in the past two days i think the louis ck news and all of this stuff it just going into it with that mindset you could really just see how um attuned to that type of thing it it is and what its sort of take on that is um which i thought was interesting i'm sure we'll get into that more as we talk about it yeah i didn't um i i also had that exact same thought i'm so glad you mentioned it but like it felt incredibly relevant that mm, yeah. uh, in a lot of ways where like Mulholland Drive, you can argue is about like, it's a story about a woman and, a, and, a, and that her story and her whole situation. Um, and this story is more about like the masculinity and how fantasy can, and can lead to corruption and the way that that is, you know, commonplace in a lot of Hollywood. Um, but Ryan, I'm also curious what you, what you thought of it. Yeah. Um, so I saw this for the first time last year. I'd last year. I did like a huge, lynch binge 
uh, which maybe wasn't the right call because you need time to actually process all that stuff. But I saw it last year and didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, and then I saw it again uh, last night and I liked it a lot more. Um, like Joel said, there was really interesting stuff in terms of like what popped up again in like the new Twin Peaks, like what visual motifs and themes came back up. Um, and just, I don't know, there was stuff that I hated the first time that I didn't actually mind the second time. Like, I mean, we'll get into it, but like the desert sex scene uh. was <laughs> a thing. Um, and I understood the plot a lot more. For me, the first time around, it was like, why is he a different guy? This makes no sense. But then considering that we've had a whole summer to think about doubles and tulpas and all that stuff, uh, in that context, I liked it a lot more. So what about you, Alan? This is your first time watching this film. <laughs> um, man, it was a trip. Good golly, it was a trip. Um, before this, I had only seen Eraserhead and Mulholland Drive, which I loved. Um, Eraserhead, I had, I, it completely flew over my head. Um, my Eraserhead, if you will. And I've seen Twin Peaks all the way through. <laughs> if you will. Um, I think that those are the only one works of his that I've seen. So I'm still like pretty fresh to the works of David Lynch. But every film of his that I watch, I go into it like with these expectations of what it's going to be about and how the performances are going to be. And I'm cons- I'm still, we're now like what, three, three for three surprised at like what he can do with the medium of film um, just in terms of like conveying theme and using visuals to terrify in a way that only he knows how to do and being able to tell all these different stories. Like my first sort of take on this film after finishing it was like, I feel like I just watched four movies. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it's not just because it's a little long. It's two hour 14 minutes approximately, but like, it has a very distinct shift. You mentioned, Ryan, that you weren't super clear about the whole body switching thing. They never say it. We only know that because, like, uh, the summaries of this film have said that, and it kind of becomes more clear as the parallels make sense. But it doesn't do what this film could have very easily done, which is, like, uh, Eddie wakes up somewhere and goes, wait a minute, I'm not this person. I'm Fred, you know? Uh, right. It just It just feels like two different films being told uh one after the other and then they kind of smush together at the end but again once you think about it like with so much of lynch's works it kind of makes a lot more sense in a big picture way uh which i thought was brilliant yeah you need to sort of think about how lynch would direct like freaky friday (laughs) and go from there totally yes that's so true yeah i was thinking on this viewing too that this film is really situated kind of nicely between um I mean, if you want to just stick with features between Firewalk with me and Mulholland Drive, um, but maybe Twin Peaks in general um, and and Mulholland Drive in the sense that I think all three of them use this sort of – they incorporate both sort of inexplicable, surreal, perhaps supernatural elements along with a kind of – like psychological realism to a certain extent that kind of grounds a lot of what you're seeing. You know, I think mm-hmm. all three films have sort of um, easy to grasp um, sort of quote unquote real world stories that are, that are really psychologically rooted in, in the characters 
situations. So, you know, Firewalk with me, it's the incest with her dad and Lost Highway, it's uh this guy jealous of his wife and killing her, and then in Mulholland Drive it's these you know, these um two actresses and one is more successful and leaves the other one and she's jealous and kills her. So so you kinda have you know, and of course in to go back to Firewalk with me, that you know, the dad kills the daughter. So all of them you have somebody killing somebody based on some sort of sexual jealousy. Um, but I think the difference between them in Twin Peaks, the supernatural kind of tends to predominate a little less so in the film than in the show, but, you know, it's, it still kind of highlights that element to the point where um, maybe you have to tease out the psychodrama a little more. And then in Mulholland Drive, I would say it's, it's probably the opposite um, based on how most people read the film, which is, you know, two thirds of it being a dream. And then the last third is like her waking life. And it's almost like a perfect little key code where you can punch in like, okay, she sees this guy in the diner and he enters her dream mm -hmm. there and this and that, and that it, it feels more grounded in the real world. Lost highway, I think is very much in between those two poles because mm -hmm. you really can't just kind of put it into one or the other. Um, in, in terms of the, I don't even want to necessarily call them mystical elements, but, you know, in terms of the the surreal sort of inexplicable fantastical stuff, it, it isn't, like, contextualized in any really easy-to-grasp um, supernatural way. Maybe because, you know, this isn't – Mark Frost isn't there to sort of do that. <laughs> you, you know, you don't have, like, a codified spirit world or this or that concept. It's just these strange things happening, people disappearing, reappearing, popping up, but then other people can see them. So you think, oh, is the mystery man – you know, just in his head, but then no, he points him out to Andy and he's like, oh yeah, that guy in black right there. And he's like totally casual about it. Um, <laughs> but then on the other hand, you know, you can't just say, so, so you're, you're kind of stuck between, you can't say it's just in his head or it's this sort of, you know, spirit world messing with the human world. You're really like just kind of torn between them. I think that's the place, this is almost like his perfect, uh, expression of, of his sensibility in that way because i think that's the place he likes to be is where you you can't pin it down to either or right uh well let's try to do let's try to do the mark frost thing uh <laughs> and try to describe to describe the events of this movie uh alan you want to kick us off what happens what happens at the start of this film okay <laughs> well so we start with um a seizure inducing jazz solo uh, <laughs> there's some stuff that happens before that yeah what is the first i mean there's plenty he of like... smokes he smokes the cigarette yeah. uh what's his name i gotta look i gotta pull up character names bill pullman's character's bro. name is fred <clears throat> fred smokes a cigarette and then there's a somebody uh buzzes in his apartment or home or whatever it is uh and and i don't even know the law i don't see i'm bad with character names so i can't do this <laughs> He uh, says, uh, Dick Laurent is dead, and it's the right. last line of the film as well. Yes, for sure. Um, and then uh, <laughs> he talks to his girlfriend, wife, whomever, and uh, she says that she won't be going to the fucking uh, jazz festival, <laughs> um, and she's going to stay home and read a book. And he says, read what? And then they have an awkward moment where she laughs. And he's like, I'm glad I can still make you laugh or whatever. And it's really <laughs> Worst weird. Worst flirting. 
And then, yeah, and then the sax happens, and it's the best thing ever. Oh, my God. I mean, it's a great song. We're, like, music in this film is incredible. Um, we're gonna, I mean, obviously, like, best song in the whole film is the... Is it a song? No, whatever. The, <laughs> the, the, the sounds that come out of his sax. The <laughs> oral <laughs> spectrum of things that come out of that saxophone. Jack Nance calls it a song, I think. That's true. I think he says, I like, like that song. I like that song. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, which we can should we talk about how the how does that how did that sax make its way from the small club to some random dude radio i know it's just some lynch shit but that's really funny to think about for me yeah maybe someone just recorded it and then had it get it was it just from a hit record like. right right he, he he totally like printed a record um, so the way, as again, this may be interesting for me because it was my first time, but the linear way that this plot happened to me was, uh, he goes to the party, uh, the other guy, Andy, I think the like shitty dude. Yes. Um, yeah. flirts with his girlfriend, whose name is Renee in this part of the reality. Uh, he gets jealous. They get home. He murders her because he finds out that she was cheating on him. Well, he, uh, I mean, you skipped over all the video. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna loop around to it. Okay. Though again, okay. the way the like it linearly made sense in my head. Well, um, you gotta sure. think, you gotta think of Fred's line about the video camera. You like to remember things the way you remember them, not necessarily yeah. the way they happened. Right, yes. and that, so you're right in the spirit of the film. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and that ties into a theme that I want to kind of close out on. But basically, um, Fred is is also sort of like stalking his girlfriend, and that's how he finds out, and he films everything in their house. He kills his girlfriend, films himself, essentially implicating himself, and then he dissociates so far that in the linear, non-supernatural version of the reality, he creates an existence where he is a young mechanic named Ed, um, and he's not in prison anymore, he gets to have sex with everybody, he creates a version of his girlfriend that actually likes him named Alice, and he invents this version of like a fantasy where she leaves her uh, mob boss boyfriend for him. But in reality, that doesn't work out either. And then it kind of loops back around and it turns out that they're all the same person. Renee is Alice. Fred is Ed. Uh, and Dick Laurent is also uh, Mr. Is it like Mr. Eddie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're all basically the same people spinning around in the same hole. And then the end of the film is actually real life Fred Madison escaping from the police. And then he dissociates so far that we don't even know if that's true anymore. Like we don't know what part is quote-unquote truth and we might he might have been dead all along and that was his like escape fantasy a lot of it i think the the this the non-reality of this film comes from fred being a character who is a person of power who does a horrible act and then gets to have the freedom of pretending it didn't happen and and being able to dissociate as a human so far from it that he can say i didn't do that i'm just some kid you know that's not that wasn't me but as we know, as we see, the cops are following him and they put the pieces together and make, it make sense of it in their own bizarre right. way. That's how I saw it. I don't know how accurate that is. I thought that was, that was pretty good. That was way better than I could have done it. So <laughs> A plus. God damn. It's yeah. I, I think my you were you again, you mentioned the whole Hollywood thing at the beginning. And I think the the theme that resonated with me the most in this film was just how it's so easy for him to like defer blame for all of these criminal acts and kind of make this own story for himself because, you know, his girlfriend, like, 
you know, they, they say they suggest that she might be in the porn industry. And a lot of times people in that situation, like, aren't going to be believed in cases of sexual assault or uh, videotaping or uh, pornography cases um, or, like, crimes of passion. And so he gets he gets the freedom to just be like, it wasn't me. You know, I didn't do it. Um, and And so I think that what was so interesting about that was just, like, Fred is, in a lot of ways, writ large Hollywood men being able to to do something and then nobody's going to know about it because they control the information and they control what is truth. But I'm curious what you all thought of sort of like the overall, what, what is the movie trying to say about all of that? Uh, uh, I like, <laughs> yeah, I like to start with the curveballs. <laughs> um, one takeaway from this I found was uh, in the second half, our protagonist, uh makes it a point similar to stuff in other lynch work where he takes it upon himself to like take this uh person who's involved with mafia stuff and be like i'm gonna save you i'm gonna get you out of here mm. but then he ends up being just as much of a fucking piece of shit as these other people where when uh alice talks about like how she got involved with these people uh he's very dismissive and very much like but but you i bet you enjoyed it huh this very just like very entitled uh like ownership over people over women specifically is a huge aspect of this film and the way that the protagonist just uses sex to uh take his mind off stuff or just like use people in this use people as stress relief or for fun uh in a way that you know he thinks he's varied he thinks he's a good guy but he is just as much of a monster as everybody else uh and i thought that was very poignant um yeah i don't know that's that's what i got so far yeah somebody once described the film as basically somebody it's like you know, discovering you're not the hero of your own movie or you're not your own story or whatever. Mm. Although in this case, I guess it's a movie. It's like, he's sort of telling the story and um, you're right. Like he's, he gets this sort of, he's able to concoct this sort of, sort of escape route. And I think, um, you know, the, the extent to which it's in his head or it's actually is willed into existence, you know, sort of up, up to the viewer, but basically, um, he, even even in the even in this version he creates for himself he he kind of can't wriggle his way out of it um it just mm. it keeps coming back and and sort of dragging on him and and i think an interesting thing too about um um what what ryan was just saying is um the film arose pretty much directly i think out of um firewalk with me in some ways because i know when they shot the last scene of Firewalk with me, or the last day of production, which incidentally was on Halloween, which also huh. is the birthday of both Mike and the little man, the actors. In real Frank Silver oh, and Michael man. J. Anderson were born on Halloween. <laughs> That's which wild. is wild. And it was the train car scene that was the last thing they shot. So it's all kinds of crazy. Okay. And supposedly on the last night of shooting, um, he was like riding back in the car with his girlfriend who's also the editor of the film mary sweeney and and had this idea about videotapes arriving at somebody's doorstep 
and showing them things they kind of didn't want to see about themselves or or know about themselves mm. or whatever. Um, right. So it comes out of that, and I think it goes directly kind of into the return because I would say in a lot of ways thematically and especially the last uh, part eighteen really is heavily heavily um, foreshadowed by Lost Highway. I think Cooper mm -hmm. kind of becomes a Fred Madison-like character, which he certainly never seemed to be in the original series, but the seeds are all kind of planted along the way, right. I'd say. And um, you, you end up with this portrait of him in Part 18 that puts him very much in what you were just saying. It's this figure who's out there to kind of rescue people, um, and yet he's sort of uh, hurting them anew, you know? Yeah. Right. Uh, and also, I want to bring up the fact that this is probably like, I mean, we watched uh, we watched Wreck last episode for our Halloween cast, and it was really funny to me that this might be like the closest mm. thing to like a lost or found footage uh, movie that we might see from Lynch, because like the VHS stuff was fucking scary. <laughs> um, and that murder scene where it like cuts back and forth from like uh the shot of him like bloody in the bed uh from the like vhs camera yep. to the uh high quality camera and stuff like that was a lot it's very paranormal yeah. activity cutting to like dead bodies in a bed you know and i think that's that's also um well i mean in terms of the videotape i think one film that it definitely influenced was uh cache the uh michael haneke, haneke film. movie yeah definitely yeah um which is funny too because that came out what 2004 2005 and they're watching like a videotape which by then dvds were much more common <laughs> but i guess so that almost shows even more that he took it from lost highway because it's like he even took the technology but um i think that whole that that whole sequence too the watching of the videotapes and it's getting closer and closer and finally you see that shot of him he's like watching it by himself and on the video, he's like waving his arms, like "Don't look at this" and stuff. Yeah, I think that that's yeah. that's part of what really feels like it comes out of um, Fire Walk with Me. This idea of like Leland as this figure who's trying to sort of, I think on the show it's like he's got repressed memories. In the film, it almost feels more like he knows, but yeah. he's he's like telling himself a certain story. And yeah. I always, when I see this film and I think of it in light of Twin Peaks and Fire Walk with Me, I think of um so, something lynch said in the book lynch on lynch which is a series of interviews with chris rodley where he said you know he was talking about laura and how it's about her and her pain and then he says it's also about the war inside the father and the interesting thing is i don't i think there's a little bit of that in the film but because it's um so focused on laura and rightfully so i would say yeah you don't get quite as much of it and it almost feels like this is kind of him diving into that aspect of the story going into the psyche mm -hmm. of the abusive person and finding these stories they tell themselves and kind of showing how they fall apart and everything like that so it's kind of interesting i think it's it's also interesting because the latter half of his career the five you know he's made 10 features and out of the the second five only two of them have a male protagonist right this and uh straight story so yeah. it's kind of interesting in that light that this comes in the midst of um a lot of films that are much more sort of focused through a female character's point of view 
and I think it's kind of colored by that. Like I think it's a very different film than Blue Velvet, for example, even though mm-hmm. you know both both uh, have a male protagonist and, and the gender of it is sort of foregrounded in a lot of ways. I think this does that in different ways than Blue Velvet does. Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely a movie that capitalizes on like fantasy and the and this is a thing that all of david lynch's works do from beginning to end but just like really outlining the thoughts and and, and actions in our head that we never put to paper um and the like sort of terrible things that we think but don't do i mean um yeah and he's sort of like and, making films about what happens when people do those things and one thing that i picked up too is like the stuff that is more grounded in reality is more on the fringes here like when he cheats on his or when the girlfriend finds out that he's cheating on him it's it's like a very like disorienting scene mm. where like they have a confront they have a confrontation they like she like knocks him to the ground or whatever and then he like spaces out because some like weird shit is happening like it's whatever the double logic or whatever is happening yeah. but it's like it's the most like most the most thing that happens where like the he clearly needs to face the consequences of this one thing and it's like the one thing in the film yep. that is very that feels very grounded but it's like a scene in the middle of all of this mess and it's like interspliced between the scene where they talk about the, their plan and before they go to the like it's very like in the middle and just jumbled up in there and it's almost just like he didn't really like it it feels very much like in his space where it's like he didn't really think of her until he wanted to use her for sex or whatever mm-hmm. uh, and then faced it when the time came but then didn't really think much of that either so right it definitely uses the like the cinematic cutting technique that Lynch is so known for to kind of get around all of the points in reality where where Fred would have to deal with consequence um mm-hmm. Like when he's in prison, it's like cut away, and now he's not in prison anymore. When he's confronted by his girlfriend, who, by the way, her dad is Gary Busey, and who else but David Lynch would make a like generic person's dad cast would cast Gary Busey? It's like the <laughs> the worst casting, but it really works in a very strange way. I love the scene when him and the wife come in. They're just wearing leather jackets. And they <laughs> take the sunglasses off at the same time. <laughs> it has nothing to do with anything. Which, they're just cool. They're just cool. Papers. By the way, I I totally forgot. I was gonna mention this when I was talking about the videotapes. The first like fifteen minutes of this movie, or ten minutes, or whatever, are so tense, and there's very little dialogue. And there's certainly nothing funny. And then they watch the first videotape, and it ends. And she turns to him, and she's got this. She really. I think she gives yeah. a great yeah. uh, performance in this film. Like it's very yeah. like I think I don't think I realized it until I'd seen the film a few times. But it's, but anyway, she she you know she's got this very soft voice. She turns to him and she's like, "Do you think it was a real estate agent or something?" And I just yeah. I burst out laughing so hard yeah. like for like a minute straight I couldn't stop just because it was so so perfect. So like I love uh, he finds those moments where just literally out of nowhere he hasn't prepared you at all like something hysterical happens and you don't yeah. even know if it's supposed to be hysterical you're right exactly right. yeah also like david lynch's weird ass cops are in full effect <laughs> i like i like the cops that show up yeah. at the house where they're they're leaving and the guy's like thanks guys and then while they're walking away you just like that's just what we do <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it's like the, the shot has cut away from him but he's still talking yeah yeah <laughs> This is what we do. We we come to your house and look at these creepy ass videotapes. 
<laughs> this is what we do. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, just like popped in from another movie almost. It's pretty funny. Yeah, and then the cops you tail second protagonist. Um and just watch him have sex with all the women. <laughs> he just has a male like, fantasy. He that's just has all sex they do. That's girl. all that's their function in this movie, basically. Yeah. Until the very end, I guess, but yeah. Um as we move along, I wanna touch on another big tentpole of Lynch's work, which is um mysterious men. Uh specifically Robert Blake's character, the mystery man. Yeah. Uh I have a I have a very specific interpretation of that character, but I'm curious before I say it what everybody else thought was the purpose and sort of function of the mystery man in this film. <sighs> Joel. Uh, I think he's like kind of a in a way he's almost like a pure form of like Bob, like what Bob was sort of yeah. supposed to be, I feel like, before he got kind of converted into this like entity from the woods with a specific mythology. He was yeah. kind of this right floating harbinger of like guilt and repression and denial and fear and all this and robert blake is that but like a, a verbal version like a terrifyingly verbal version <laughs> you know where he just comes in and like is speaking to him from two places at once and everything yeah. like that i feel like every lynch post fire walk with me you can take a look at one character and be like yeah he's the black lodge guy <laughs> right yeah in that's the, true in... In the David Lynch cinematic multiverse, this guy also hangs out with the Formica table and everything over there. In the straight story, it's uh, the Chris Farley's brothers who repair the uh, tractor. <laughs> um, yeah. I have a similar take, but basically it's also an unintentional, amazing coincidence uh, that real life, actually, Robert Blake went to jail for um, assaulting his wife. Yeah. Or didn't go no. to jail, right? He got off, I think. Oh, I think you're right. Didn't he? He, I think he, he got, got off the first time, and then oh, they, they got him won for a civil else, case. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, exactly like uh, O.J., who, yeah. by the way... I, this film that's is inspired one of the by the O.J. Times, story. Yeah, that's one of the few times he's actually cited an example. And I wonder, because they must have been writing it while that was happening, because I think the film, it came out in 97, I think it was shot in like late 95. Mm-hmm. So, and I know, I mean, Firewalk with me was shot in like 91. So he, I guess he had the idea back then, but he was kicking around other ideas. And then he got together with um, Barry Gifford and wrote, wrote this, like right well, that whole thing was happening. And you can see so many elements of it in there, you know, mm -hmm. um, either consciously or unconsciously. I mean, even the fact that, you know, he's using a gun through the whole movie and all this, but then he's like got the knife when he kills mr eddie and everything like that like there's just little details but also much broader things um that sort of tie into that case you know and i mean that was so huge at the time like right i, I was a little kid but like in the past couple of years watching um the ezra edelman documentary which i highly recommend it's so good um made in america oh yeah um mm -hmm. it, just like getting that sort of refresher on like oh yeah this was like the cultural like moment you know like this was mm. every it was on like saturday night live it was on this that and the other thing and this is such an interesting way of kind of putting that through the lynch prism you know yeah yeah especially this idea of perception and the way that the oj trial was so incredibly um at least culturally has been framed around like what people thought was the truth versus like mm -hmm. the objective truth of what happened in that case 
right um and how so much of it was conveyed to people through film and through like television mm, great point uh, yeah like the parallels are all there uh, and i also i was very i was like a baby <laughs> when that case was going on but my parents talked about it a lot and i i've watched some of the the stuff since then on it and yeah i think it's also just interesting that this is like at least from what i've seen the first david lynch film that very clearly links to something that happened in real life like i know people have definitely like analyzed Mulholland drive being about certain actresses and um same thing with firewalk with me obviously about millions of young women in suburbs who have been abused but uh but this like has a direct we know who this is about in a way kind of thing mm. yeah and it it's really like i think of all his films this is the one that most feels of its moment in a way i wouldn't say like dated but it feels so very um mid nine mid mid to like early late nineties, you know? Between yeah, the video the soundtrack, tape, the the soundtrack, soundtrack helps. But yep. like also like the teen like all of his earlier films, like teenagers wear like cardigans and like, you know, they look like they come out of like nineteen fifty five and in this they're like right. oh no, they actually look like a teenagers in nineteen ninety seven. Sort of. I well mean, they look like the know. repo men version of teenagers. <laughs> yeah. And you got Giovanni Ribisi in there too. Oh God, yeah, That's one of his Love friends. Him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just to wrap around really quickly, I, I basically my my read on the mystery man is that um he's just everything negative brought to like a single being, like you said, very similar to Bob and all of that. Um, and that was solidified for me when uh he hands him the knife at the end, because it was like you. You had the chance to step away, but then the evil inside of you gave you the tool to just mm. kill this person and, and say, like, no, that's me. I'm the one who did it. And that's where we stop seeing Eddie and we just see Fred from the rest of, for the rest of the film is, like, the mm. evil in him is telling him, stop trying to distance yourself from this, take responsibility, and accept that you're a terrible criminal, you know? Yeah, and he has that whole line about, you know, I'm in your house. I don't go places where I'm not invited, which is such a great line such yeah. a great moment in that uh yeah he has so many good like creepy lines the scene in the club uh, or not in the club but at the at the party um which i love day when david lynch does parties because he doesn't know how actual real people like host parties <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like here's three people like synchronized diving into a pool at the same time and like <laughs> Like, this woman uh, is, like, falling on top of, like, six men. Like, he's just just debauchery, writ, like, just in big have, letters. Have you guys ever seen the music video for Crazy Clown Time? Yeah. I have not. Oh, God. God. Google that as soon as this, this podcast is over. It's it's it what you're talking about turned up to, like, billion. 11. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also a song in which he sings everything that's happening. Like, he himself. Yeah. Oh my God. singing in a really high-pitched voice about people lighting their hair on fire and taking their shirt off and pouring beer on each other. And you, and then the music video for that is them just doing those things for like six minutes. And it's like a pink room type drone set over. It's so good, but it's so ridiculous. Nobody can ever party. Like, it's just not feasible <laughs> to live like that. But like you, 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 and it, I think the, the camera like literally pans from outside to inside and uh, we have the main character like getting these drinks for him and his girlfriend as she's being swooned away by a shitty guy. And he turns around and then the guy is just there. And he's there in a way that like it's not a jump scare, but it's just like, oh, he was in the party all along. You didn't see him. 
and he says like you know yeah. hey nice to see you again and you know i didn't i don't know you oh you do know me i was there at your house again suggesting that like if you re- take my read which is that he's the embodiment of evil there's been evil in your house since the beginning be it you or renee or however you want to read this film it's probably you um i've just been there and i'm on the phone and i can talk to you i'm real uh david lynch i think more than any other director captures like nightmare logic uh profoundly yeah. well um to the it superimposes him on her face yeah so that was the shot right that was the first <laughs> scary shot where i was yeah. like ryan i texted ryan while watching this and i was like this movie's like not scary you literally texted me the night before and said i forgot how scary this movie is and then right there i was like oh no no <laughs> it's just like the well it's not like the bob ball nothing is as good as the bob ball but um in terms of like David Lynch can use like quote unquote bad effects to yeah. Im- immense, uh, like to just scare you in such a big way. <laughs> Here's this superimposed Robert Blake on top of uh, Patricia Arquette's face in bed, and I'm like, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. I'm done. <laughs> There's a moment at the end of Inland Empire that's like the ultimate yeah. example of that to me. Yeah. Yeah. Just even thinking 100%. of it now, I'm shivering. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I still think my like David Lynch shot that will forever terrify me is obvious. It's um, it's Bob walking over the jumping over the couch. Yes. Yeah, that's that's. And the there's one. a moment in this that reminds me so much of that and has a similar effect, which is the mystery man like walking towards the car. Yes. And he just keeps cutting back, and he's just walking, walking. And he cuts back, and he's closer. And it's I I can't put my finger on exactly what it is about the cutting and the staging that does it. But it's terrifying. And then he raises his arm up and I just like, oh, God, he's coming out of the TV to get me right now. Yeah, he's getting me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's so good. And that's my also. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, yeah. Keep going. Uh, favorite line of the film comes from that where he says, who the fuck are you? Like, just yeah. say it. And you're like, I don't know who I am. <laughs> you start questioning yourself. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, too, one thing that was struck me tonight watching this was um was the editing because i've been thinking a lot um i would say i mean really for the past few years but also sort of seeing the return about lynch's collaboration with mary sweeney who was his editor from the killer's reveal episode of twin peaks which by the way aired at this time uh 27 years Ooh. ago tonight like Whoa. right at Twitter I think 10 33 or something you know was probably when the when they actually did the reveal but like, um, so so she started on that. She'd been like an assistant editor and a script supervisor with him before, um, and then she edited Firewalk with Me, Lost Highway, Straight Story, and Mulholland Drive. And she wrote uh, Straight Story, and she was a producer as well. And they had a child together, Riley, who plays uh, in the band in The Return when Richard Horn is introduced. He's like the guitarist. Oh. Um, so, so obviously, you know, an important person in his life and everything like that. Um, but she's just got this, uh, you know, really beautiful, uh, style that I don't, and you know, it's always hard to parse what's a director and what's an editor in a film. Um, right, but right. it's quite distinctive. I feel from his own style, it's got certain overlap, but especially in recent years, um, the return and even the missing pieces as well just have sort of a different a little bit of a drier style i would say and mm-hmm. everything that she cut for him uh, is it feels much more sort of fluid and um 
sort of a vague word, but sort of impressionistic, you know, like everything kind of flows, the images flow into one another in these really almost kind of like musical ways. There's a lot of these long dissolves that, that are really striking and, um, just uh, you were talking before about like the sex scene in the desert like that whole scene is like amazingly right. edited yeah like it just it's yeah. it just is like so good uh like she's just so she 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 has a certain um there's a certain quality that i i feel like she brought to his work which and part of it just could be where he was at too versus where he is now um that was something i kind of missed from the return like you know, I went in like, this is going to be what it is, and I'm not going to sort of bring the expectations of it's going to be like this film, Lynch film or that Lynch film or anything. Um, but that is something I kind of miss because just speaking personally, that's kind of my favorite. Um, my favorite Lynch films are from that period. My favorite sort of mood that he evokes is, is those those films and everything like that. So, so that mm-hmm. really struck out at me tonight, I think. Yeah. A lot of sex in this film. Just like a remarkable amount of sex. Um, a lot of naked Patricia this, Arquette between... I bet this was really a hard movie to do. Mm-hmm. Um, And like graphic, like very graphic too. And and I think it's important. Like I don't... Uh, I, we, everyone, it's, it's fair to say that sometimes like David Lynch in the way that he can do sex scenes feels like a little bit... Either like he doesn't know how actual people have sex, which is kind of true... Or um, he, like, doesn't give both genders, like, equal play in a sex scene. Um, that is 100% intentional here, yes. though. Uh, every time Fred and Renee have sex, it's definitely, like, he's on top and he's doing all of the, like, action. And she's just kind of there to be the screaming, the moaning person. And right. whether or not, like, how intense the sex is also depends on, like, the intensity of the, the moment. Um between her and with Alice and with, uh, I think the other per- woman that's in this film. Um, it's very intentional, like you said, but there's just a lot of, like, there's a large quantity of, there's like the highest quantity of sex scenes that I've seen in a non like pornographic film, honestly. Um, and I guess that is intentional because so much of it is about lust and, and sex, but, um, I, I don't know. They're all, it was just, and none lot. of it's, yeah, I, I mean, mean I, and so much. Yeah. Mid- yeah, go ahead, Joel. Well, I was gonna say, and actually, then I was gonna take it back, but I was gonna say it's, <laughs> it's most of it's not very like successful sex, except right. there is that period where Pete is kind of seducing everyone, and you know, he seems to be enjoying himself at least. But the, you know, the other the other stuff, uh, sort of the book ending sex scenes, are just you know in very different ways. Um, obviously failures you know and they yeah they both are scored similarly um if you actually listen closely song to the siren is playing very faintly when he's first uh in bed with renee in like the you know, near the beginning of the film and there's another sequence where it plays too actually um oh when the house when he sees the house sort of imploding uh, okay. or coming back together you can hear it faintly as well. And that was, a, interestingly enough, that was a song that uh, Lynch wanted to use for Blue Velvet, and he couldn't get the rights. So he ended up uh, bringing Julie Cruz and Angelo Badalamente on, and that was like the beginning of their collaboration. Well, side note. Mm. But this, yeah, it's interesting you say that too about the positions they're in, because the op, even though, um, you know, um, 
in the return it's it's sort of opposite like very strikingly so yeah where the women are on top both times right uh both in the the glass box scene and then i think the major scene that feels so much like lost highway to me the scene where um i keep wanting to call her laura uh, laura dern um diane where diane and and cooper or richard and linda whoever they are are just having really bad sex in the motel like that feels super lost highway to me well and i think the difference for me is like lost highway uh there is i i read a majority of the sex scene in in this film as uh a man using or obtaining something rather mm-hmm. than having the experience of uh, enjoying the sex or like being in love with someone. Like you're mm. very much just like you are in- initiating sex to obtain something yeah, or to achieve point. something rather than to actually experience it. And that's why it's so telling. I think the, the two book ending ones, because it's almost like those are the only scenes in the movie where like at least during sex like the woman kind of asserts her presence or becomes real the first one it's like he he can't reach her and you know she's sort of what does she say there there or something like that yeah and sort of pats her on the back and then but the second one is uh second one is really brilliant i think because it, Lynch makes an interesting maneuver in this film, which is very sort of perilous, because uh, the whole thing, it's depicting misogyny, and it obviously, in doing so, and being Lynch and everything, it sort of teeters on the brink of, like, embodying it at times, and I think the maneuver that he makes in the second, um, maybe actually, like, the last third of the movie, um, is that he takes alice and he makes her you know she becomes this sort of femme fatale figure where it's like oh okay so she you know is is you can read it sort of in this reductive way of like okay she's betraying him and she's really bad to begin with which i think is sort of what he's the character you know fred pete is almost sort of setting up in his head like giving himself an excuse for why he why he kills her but but actually if you look at it it's place in the narrative and where it comes um not so much chronologically before the murder but actually like the chronology of the film itself you've seen her victimized for the first really hour and a half you know Mm -hmm. uh, victimized and objectified and in the final uh half hour or so she asserts a kind of a power over him that he can't overcome and Mm -hmm. i don't know i find it in a weird way very like humanizing for the character uh even though it's playing with these tropes that are sort of um, you know, you know the femme fatale trope, basically, where you know could easily be seen as sort of distancing her from audience sympathy and everything like that. I find it's kind of um, it's giving it's giving the character a power beyond being sort of the victim and actually being able to turn the tables to a certain extent on him. And I don't know, it's it's hard to describe, but it's it just the, right. the way the film plays with those different modes and those different um, sort of stereotypes and then breathes life into them, I just find fascinating. And I think I think it does it really well. And it's sort of one of those reasons I have trouble seeing Lynch as, as like a postmodernist or something like that, which he sometimes described as, 
or his i don't know if he's described that way but his work is sometimes described right, as right. sort of postmodern. and i think the difference to me from a lot of the stuff i see that that gets called postmodern or seeks to be postmodern is there's like there's a depth to it that that i find particularly effective yeah it almost feels like uh it almost feels like fred madison is the kind of person who watched a lot of noir films and the fantasy that he constructed is a is just one of those um like from beginning to end he has a blonde femme yeah. fatale he has a mob boss um who pissed the right. lips a guy for tailgating by the way oh that's <laughs> that's, yeah, so, that's great yeah. and apparently that's like that's a great. like lynch was like driving and some guy was like tailgating him and pissing him off and he, that's like he wrote it into the film because of that <laughs> it's like his his own outlet <laughs> uh not to get too off track but uh i'm so i did a bit of traveling today and i was like exiting my parking garage um and like this fucking i was so i have to turn to get on the road and there are there are cars uh, like coming down the street so i couldn't turn i was waiting for them to pass and this fucking asshole and this fucking bike on the sidewalk that's next to my car just started yelling at me for no fucking reason <laughs> i couldn't turn there's nowhere to put my car besides where it was but he insisted that i should turn and it made me very mad now where, anyway where do you live uh that was, this was down in richmond virginia oh, okay because i was gonna say i lived in um la for a while and it's like the only place in the world where just everybody rides their bicycle on the sidewalk and it drove me nuts <laughs> like i'd be walking on the sidewalk and someone would come within inches of me on my left like zooming by on a bicycle and i'm just like who does that like who rides their bicycle on this like it just wouldn't feel natural to me i don't know <laughs> yeah anyways uh, <laughs> i guess just to bring it back around um I love I love the final shot of this film a lot. Uh, I think it's another one of those examples of Lynch using like a easy effect to great effect, if you will, both the A and the E version of that word. Um, but it's just this moment where uh, you know Fred is being chased by the police. He has gone through the ringer. He's left a trail of bodies behind, and he's trying to have this like noir Bonnie and Clyde film ending where he gets away scot-free. Uh, and I think in regards, Joel, to your interpretation earlier that like, even though this film is about him, it's like not, it's not, it's not like praising anything he's doing. He's clearly detestable. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that he doesn't quote unquote get away in that moment, but he does like dissociate enough from the scene that he just becomes, you know, special effects um i think says a lot about like what lynch is saying about this character because um that is in my in my read of it that's just uh that is just fred being like ah uh, this is how it worked for me i don't know the rest of this story doesn't matter goodbye and and just kind of like leaving his own body and seeing like whatever else happens that was me you know kind of doing it again but in reality this character is caught and sent to jail for the rest of his life um uh, and then and then ominous Bowie kicks in. That's the best. Ominous Bowie is best Bowie. Yes, it's true. Um, Some people, when they to sort of make it more literal, almost in a way, they see that as the moment where he's electrocuted. Yeah, I did. I you did know? read that. <laughs> he's in the electric mm. chair or whatever. Right. Wherever you want to separate reality from fantasy, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um. But again, my other favorite thing is that that ties it back into the the title of the film, which is Lost Highway, and. 
this idea that you can kind of like change yourself or lose something once you get onto the big open road. Like you're going to be able to get away with murder or you're going to be get, able to get away from your problems or get away from your identity or the reality of the world. And you can't ultimately, it's still just the road. Um, and then finally, just, I've talked to, to this, uh, about this to Ryan before, especially when we were watching the return, but like David Lynch and I haven't myself driven at night that often. I'm very afraid of driving at night. But he captures the like why I'm afraid of driving at night really well. Yeah. Um. Just like the <laughs> shot. I mean, it's the shot that bookends the film. Also, it's the shot that is like the cover of it, which is the just mm. pitch black open road. All you see is the yellow of the traffic lines. Um. And that feeling that like I can't see an inch in front of me. I'm in the void basically. Uh. Mm. That's like primally terrifying to me. And the fact that Fred is going into that is is kind of what cements it as like oh he's not. He's not going anywhere good at the end of the movie. He is kind of sacrificing himself to the the fate, you know. Yeah. It's a heavy film. Do we want to Yeah, <laughs> do we want to talk about this in context of Twin Peaks or where do we, where do we want to take this next? Uh I yeah. Because I mean, I mentioned like the motifs and stuff being similar uh just in terms of doubles and all that stuff. But also just watching this again made me just realize how much, how much like visual stuff, how much like that, that there's that scene in a small hotel room. That's like out of Inland Empire or something. Um, And yeah, just there's, I feel like David Lynch work just talks to each other in in ways that probably maybe directors don't really do, but they all seem like interconnected. And like the, the obviously the like red curtains in the first like house and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. That's something I thought about a lot while watching this one. Yeah, definitely. There, there's just images that are very. And actually, I want to throw one more thing in here too that I think is a coincidental correspondence because Lynch has actually been asked about it and claimed that, Oh, I've never seen her work or whatever. Um, and maybe he didn't, he forgot, or maybe it's just, you know, they, they dig from the same, uh, they, they pull from the same subconscious. Well, but the work of Maya Darren, particularly meshes of the afternoon, um, this film really evokes a lot. I think, um, Mulholland drive probably does even more, but, for anybody, I guess, listening to the, or or who doesn't um, hasn't seen her work, like she was an experimental filmmaker in the early '40s. Um, she shot a film with her husband in a house, which is very sort of similarly situated, both geographically and just how it looks, to the house in Lost Highway in L.A. And um, in in the film, there's like doubles, and there's sort of dreams within dreams, and people sort of floating up to the ceiling and looking out a window and seeing people seeing themselves walk by below and stuff. And I did a video, which, which um, is called meshes of Lynch, which does like a split screen. And it sort of shows all the shots in in that film that are similar to shots from his later films. And it, that just really struck me again, this time watching it in that mm. context. Right. Yeah, I mean, more than a, a lot of other directors, he not only uses similar themes and ideas like we've discussed, but literally, like you said, similar shots, um, be it as intentional nods or just the fact that like he has a house style and he likes to stick to it. 
Um, which is why, yeah, again, like watching the return just feels like this holistic conclusion of like all of the different Lynch yeah. styles into one work, basically. Uh, and I think that was like, even if you separate it from being a Twin Peaks property, um, the return kind of is like a like a compilation of all of the things that Lynch does really well and really it's occasionally really badly. But, you know. Yeah. And also like the sex scene at the end of the return. Yeah. The- it's very similar like not only just like aesthetically but functionally as a way to like in terms of character work i guess of like cooper like not being able to confront this like truth about himself and like trying to force this situation while diane is like obviously just traumatized by everything and just wants to leave uh and that's sort of the moment where she realizes that she has to go so and even Kyle McLaughlin's performance is a lot like Bill Pullman's in that, it, which is everybody notices like when he comes out of the, I would say the moment that it happens is um, after the flashback of, or whatever it is of Laura whispering in his ear and being sucked away. Um, after that moment, he turns and he looks at the curtains mm-hmm. and then he comes out of the curtains. So it's almost like he's seeing himself. He comes out of the curtains. He walks up, past the camera and the person sitting in the chair is Leland not Cooper which is very interesting in its own light um but from that moment on he has this sort of sour performance not the Cooper that we sort of know and love very kind of reserved and a little moody and it just reminds me a lot of Fred Madison in this movie you know yeah He's a character who has convinced himself of a universal truth, uh, which we, the viewer and the director, know is not true. And that is, yeah, yeah that's the closest uh, comparison between Fred and, and Cooper in like, and, again, very specifically in the end of uh, The Return. Yeah. And in a way, I guess it kind of retroactively pictures the way we read Cooper in the entirety of Twin Peaks. And I... I... It is impossible for me to talk about this stuff without just thinking about the hands covering that face throughout mm, that scene. Yeah, that's it is yeah. so chilling. Oh, um, I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, that fucking show. Yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. It's an incredible body of work. And like you said, Joel, you've been writing about him for so long, but he hasn't put out like anything but the return since you started. And uh I, I wish in a way on one hand I do wish he would make more films but on the other hand like i don't i would never want him to like rush anything right i think give david lynch the time and the cast that he wants he like has a a selection of hollywood friends and he knows all of them and they all want to be in his films and that's who he's going to work with until he isn't making movies anymore um and none of his movies are going to do well you know lost highway had an estimated budget of 15 million (laughs) dollars its opening growth gross in America was about two hundred thousand dollars. Um and the 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 poster for the film said uh Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs down ta- two thumbs down, two more great reasons to see Lost Highway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Ebert had an interesting relationship with Lynch's films. I think I think there are people who just don't get it, but I think he he kind of like got it and resisted it yeah he got it but didn't like that yeah like there's a great story of like the blue velvet screening because he gave an infamously negative review to that film and 
that according to the person who was there who witnessed it, um, Siskel and Ebert were sitting there. They were both very engaged with the movie. Ebert was like laughing out loud. He was like shocked at certain parts. And they said the movie ended and he just had this funny expression on his face. Like he like almost like he didn't trust his own response or something. And he kind of like walked out of the theater and they went back and he just like panned it horribly. And like, you know, this was an exploitative movie and it was imbalanced. It didn't know what it wanted to be and all this stuff. So it seems like he just something, something, and I think he even said in one of his later reviews when he finally started giving him credit, like something in me resists David Lynch. I just thought it was that's an interesting way of putting it, but he did not like yeah. Lost Highway. Which is crazy to watch it and think how good this and think how many movies came out that year that just couldn't hold a candle to it or have been forgotten or whatever. And it's like, how could you not recognize this movie in 1997 as being a, a masterpiece? You know, it's like so self-evident, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, they didn't. <laughs> I first of all, I think Ever and and Lynch would have been very good friends if they met on different terms. <laughs> I think their sensibilities in a lot of ways were the same and the way that they talk and think about film is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, like you said, this is a year where Titanic came out <laughs> like t- top five build film, uh, top five domestic grossing films of 1997 Titanic men in black Jurassic park Two, liar, liar and air force one. Just like, Oh yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing all of those in the theater. <laughs> yeah. Look, I don't know about you, but Men in Black is a masterpiece. Men in Black is actually pretty pretty well done. <laughs> Men in Black Air Force One, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I mean is, like, yeah, this film exists in this weird space of like, it's very relevant to its time. Uh, it features a lot of people who went on to become very famous. We didn't even mention Marilyn Manson being in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Rammstein having an amazing uh, a scene scored to their music. I like Rom using Rammstein as a source of tension. Yeah, as a source of just like anxiety and <laughs> dread. I like that the use of that. It's amazing. And it's like the same ten seconds of song that he uses twice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much with Marilyn Manson. It's, it's like a snuff film that like Marilyn Manson's on in. Like, I don't know what the hell is going on in that film. It's like Betty Page combined with, like, like just like you're sort of saying, like, Lynch, you know, Lynch's version of parties, Lynch's version of sex. Like, that's Lynch's version of porn, I guess. And it's just like... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, God. So weird. I also forgot that uh, Face Off came off, came, came off, came oh, out yeah. the same year as oh, this yeah. film. <laughs> um, See, another body uh, switch movie. It's, there you go. <laughs> honestly, as soon as I pieced together what this film was about, that was my, it, this is bad, but that was my first comparison. <laughs> and this is only bad because Face Off is corny, but that's a very good film. <laughs> I enjoy it. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, but it's, inc- it's dramatically different. There is definitely probably something to be said about, uh, 1997 and like people wanting to not be themselves anymore Mm. and kind of wanting to like leap out of their own bodies and that anxiety of the the late 90s early 2000s um that is a conversation for another day though i cannot (laughs) i can't put those puzzles also the year uh la confidential came out which kind of has yeah a bit of overlap with it i think la confidential is like fred madison's uh dream world but made into its own movie yeah Uh, with the bad guy winning at the end and all. Oops. Um, <laughs> I love LA Confidential. I think that movie's fantastic. Um, I actually it... forgot. I forgot the ending of it. So you, you I, can you spoil a movie you've already seen? 
Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's kind of a question this film asks. Yes, yeah, it's, it, yeah, yeah. This is the perfect <laughs> film to ask that for. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I, I really that movie's really good. But yeah, this was a weird time for cinema. I'm just I'm glad to have seen this and and get to piece together like where was David Lynch in 2000 mm. in 1997 rather. Um, I think it's kind of it feels like a response to Tarantino in some ways too. Oh, for sure. I, mean, I always yeah. love the fact that like. Tarantino, you know, he just he trashed Firewalk with me, and then it's like Lynch makes this film, and the Andy guy just feels like a sort of a Tarantino stand-in to me, like he just kind of looks like him. L.A. '90s hipster vibe, and he sends him careening into like a glass table. <laughs> I like how one of the cops call him Deadhead. <laughs> Forgot about oh, that. Oh God. <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, yeah, um, like. Yeah. Just really quickly looping back to Roger Ebert, who I love talking about. Um, he he pan- he refused to review Firewalk with me. He said, "I will not touch this film with a ten foot pole." I mean, if we want to talk about like Firewalk with me is my favorite Lynch film. I think it's his best film. I think it's a masterpiece, and it makes me mad that the, the reception of that movie was what it was. But for various reasons. But like, man, God. <laughs> I mean, so much of it is about is about context. Like I did say earlier, that Lost Highway is like one of the first films um, that of David Lynch's that like feels as like a product of its time. But you have to enjoy Firewalk with me. You have to understand not only the context of how it was made, but like the show that came before it and the themes that aren't explicitly said in either the film or uh, the show. And you also need to come at it with the expectation that is not the show, which is yeah. what, what many people like couldn't understand right it's its own thing that that exists in that universe yeah yeah so yeah in a way a lot of his stuff actually um is relevant to the time it came like even like you can read about Eraserhead and how david lynch had a lot of like parent anxiety and didn't know if he wanted to have a kid and all and you know how to like marriage and commitment and all that stuff uh like a lot of his fears and and thoughts at the time of each of his movies just kind of made their way onto the screenplay which i feel like you don't see that as much there aren't as many like personal uh i don't i'm trying to classify the genre of this like thrillers thrillers that are like in ways about the worries of the creator that come out anymore um and if there are then it's just like very generic we are afraid of outsiders or we are afraid of xyz right where it feels like it's like some sort of auteur who has like their own set of personal concerns and they're using the genre to express it in some way Right, and sometimes he just literally puts things from his life in there. Like, I think there's a piece of trivia that says uh, David Lynch actually was going to somebody's house, and somebody said over the intercom, <laughs> "Dick Laurent is dead." <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> he literally heard that phrase apparently and remembered it. I know. <laughs> Trying to go back and like explain that in a way, yeah, that's he he has he's had an interesting life, and he always wants to convey it to people, and I, I applaud him for that. I've always thought that. Um, do we do we have any other closing thoughts on Lost Highway? I think I think we we rode down that highway pretty well. Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I had to work one in there. Come on. Um, oh yeah, here's an interesting thing. Um, you know, just talking about how the whole movie is, you know, the movie is about uh, sort of this this guy in L.A. accused of you know murdering his wife, and we're talking about. Um, oj simpson and how robert blake is in it 
interesting bit of casting is the girl, um, Pete's girlfriend, is played by Natalie Wood's daughter and Robert Wagner's daughter. And, um, you know, if you know her sort of history, there's all this weird stuff about how she drowned and people say, oh, Christopher Walken or Robert Wagner or somebody like pushed her off. So I, I'm not saying that's true, but that's always sort of been the gossip and the scuttlebutt and the scandal, you know, Hollywood Babylon or that type of thing where the people put those those theories out there and stuff. So that's an interesting bit of casting that didn't I didn't even really think about until tonight. Um, mm. And I would guess it's just coincidental. Obviously, the Robert Blake thing is coincidental because it, did, it didn't happen yet. for a few years. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's just these there's always these weird synchronicity things with with Lynch, you know. And I, I think that's for me, end of the day, the most enjoyable thing about watching a David Lynch film is it's putting together the puzzle piece in my head of what is going on. Like, I don't. I, I watch the films before I read about them because I want to mm. even just the basic like plot is something that you have to make sense of yourself. And, and that's why I love discussing this stuff with people too, is like he, more than any other director, it feels like a joy and a, and a task in a way, but like an enjoyable task to understand what's going on and make your own meaning out of it. Uh, like that's just a really rewarding thing that film can do that not a lot of directors do anymore. They kind of just want to tell you what's going on. Well, he definitely doesn't do that. No, God, no. <laughs> and, and Lord praise him for it, you know. Uh, also, Jack Dance's final acting role uh, as person who likes shitty saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I definitely teared up in his scene uh, in the end of The Return, even though it, well, that was archival footage. Um but yeah, it was. This is a weird final film to be. In. <laughs> His role is good. Same thing with Richard Pryor, amazing comedian. Gets like one line in here where he's like, "Hey, you're." He basically is like a plot develop a plot uh, yeah. device just to go, "Hey, you're the guy who works here." And he goes, "I work here." <laughs> yeah, you work here. <laughs> and that's how he went into that sweet good night. Yeah, I love too how like the uh, the. This is kind of out of nowhere, but just thought of it. How the parents disappear when he's on the phone with the mystery man. Yep. And then yeah. we, never see, yep. we never see them again. It's just so ominous. Yeah. That in the scene where, like, Gary that, Busey. Yeah. And I don't know the other actress's name, but she's got, like, this look. They cut to her. She's just, like, looking at him almost out of, like, the side of her eyes. And she looks like she's going to cry. And it's just, like, this really haunting scene. And I have no idea what it's about. Like, I have no clue. Like, I've tried to, like... What, what like what happened that night is it just the fact that he disappeared and switched places right. or is there like some other thing that we can't talk about and we can only allude to and it's just like man like what like i've heard different interpretations of it and it's just like i don't know what to think but it's so haunting <laughs> right. and they won't tell him right. what it is either it's like never <laughs> yeah. talk about it's this. yeah it's <laughs> definitely i think it's it's sort of the real life equivalent of like the family secret or yeah. maybe or you could even read it as like they know what's going on in the meta reality of the film and they're the only two characters who do and everyone else is kind of like along for the ride uh maybe there's yeah there's a lot of interesting reads on that those two characters uh yeah. lucy butler by the way plays uh that oh okay yeah oh um yeah i think that's all i got i think i hit every single bullet point that was a lot 
had a lot of thoughts. Movie, this movie's a lot. <laughs> there's a like lot you of said, it's like four or five about. films. You get through, you're like, yeah. wow, I was in that film for two hours. That I was in that film for two hours. Yeah, you could honestly still the... you could still watch this movie after our episode, and you could still find enjoyment out of it. Like I don't think that Lynch's films are like that spoilable. Um, like maybe explaining to someone what the reality of and the linear timeline of Mulholland Drive can kind of ruin that movie a little bit. Um, cause that's part of the fun of it, but with this movie, it's just like, yeah, there's very little we could tell you that would ruin this film. <laughs> there's, there's just a it's lot interesting that I actually did. Somebody did tell me the interpretation of Mulholland Drive before I saw it. So I always wonder if I would have liked, huh. and also, I mean, the return, I don't know if you guys were paying attention to like rumors or gossip or whatever while it was happening. Um, what's the mm-hmm. word, I guess, leaks or whatever. Yeah, they the he shot the last scene of the return yes. out in yes. the open in front of a huge crowd with yes. cell phones. Like Lynch, the secret yes. keeper. I still yep. can't wrap my head around that. It's incredible. So I thought for it's years great. there's no <laughs> way that's the last scene of the show. It's gonna happen in like episode two or three, and then it's like episode fifteen. Oh shit, it hasn't happened yet. Episode sixteen, seventeen. The last ten minutes of episode eighteen, I'm like, this is gonna be the end of the show. I can't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's incredible. And again, that's this the only movie he's made in the era of cell phones, too. So uh yeah. the first time that like as soon as there were a lot of people um online that I saw that were really careful not like they had um pictures and video of stuff being filmed and they didn't post them until the show was over. Mm. Like I I saw someone that was there for the filming of the final um Nadine scene. Where she's yeah. outside of the current store and and all of that, they were like, "I, I was right there. That was being filmed in front of a bunch of people too, <laughs> but we didn't post it until that episode aired." Weird. <laughs> uh, I think the one episode, I think there was two episodes, but like one episode that I like spoiled myself like pre-release because it was the one that like accidentally aired in Europe for some reason. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I think that was the like Jack Rabbit's Palace one where I like I like skimmed it. And I was like, some stuff happens, okay. But then I watched them, just like, oh, that's not. The one in some directions I didn't expect. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then also just to wrap it up, I think uh, Blue Velvet is my next. It's my next adventure, my Lynch adventure. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm curious. So you haven't. You've. You said you've seen Lost Highway, Mahon Drive, and and Twin Peaks and Firewalk with Me. And Eraserhead, actually. Yeah, that's it. Um, I'll probably it's interesting skip... to hear your reaction when you see Inland Empire because that, that's... yeah, that's when you were yeah. saying before each one surprises you and it's not what you would expect or whatever. Like that's <laughs> in, like a whole other realm. Like that's the only Lynch God. film I think I can still see and still feel kind of similarly to how I felt when I first saw it of just like disorient, total disorientation. Like mm-hmm. you know, cool. <laughs> I never really got situated yeah. in it. It's very exciting, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, so, uh, let's, let's do some plugs for our stuff. Um, Joel, where can people find your work on the internet? They can find me on lostinthemovies.com. I'm on Twitter, at lostinthemovies, and also on YouTube as Lost in the Movies. And if you want to sort of jump right into, to one thing, if you Google Journey Through Twin Peaks, that's probably the first thing that'll come up. Yeah, we'll definitely, yeah, we'll link to that too, just so people can find it. 
conveniently. Oh, and also, yeah, throw, I should throw it again, that, that one video, Meshes of Lynch. I think that's the only um, video I've made that uses uh, images from Lost Highway. I've done some that use audio from it. But it, I think if, even if you haven't seen Meshes of the Afternoon, the Maya Darren film, it's, it, I think it's a, sort of a cool juxtaposition to see those two things together. Right. Um, Ryan, working. Thanks for thanks so much for being on. By the way, this is this a was, blast. Yeah, no, this this was fun. Thank you guys can, for inviting me. I can, yeah, for sure. I can talk about this shit forever, <laughs> but I know we have to we have to end this at some point. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Talking Detective. I recently recently by, I mean today, published an article about the recent election in Virginia. It's an opinion opinion piece, so that's on my that's pinned on my Twitter. So go ahead and read that. Uh, yeah, I'm doing stuff. Talk Detective on Twitter. That's all one word. Yeah. What about you, Alan? I'm on Twitter at Alan Ibrahim, spelled A-L-L-E-N-I-B-R-A-H-I-M. You can find all my postings there, and you can listen to me on another podcast about television. It's called Chats, a television podcast. That's found wherever you listen to podcasts. It's C-H-A-T-Z. Um, we're wrapping up our discussion of The Last Airbender very, very soon. We haven't posted an episode in a while, but we're working on it. Um, and that's a very exciting thing that you should check out. It's week to week. It's a good time. Um, and you can find the podcast at Podcast Fireside on Twitter. Um, it's on Abnormal Mappings Podcast Network. They're a wonderful um, group of shows. Um, we're not going to list all of them, but they're great. Go to abnormalmapping.com. Back their Patreon. It helps us in a way. It helps them in a big way. You get access to more podcasts that way. It's just a big network of fun and interesting people, and you should support them. Um, but I think that is, for today, going to do it for this episode of Fireside, friends. Um, good luck out there, and don't forget to take care of yourselves. Bye-bye! This podcast is being hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Podcast Network. Visit abnormalmapping.com and check out our other shows, including Abnormal Mapping. Been a long time. Good episode 69. Some would say it's fun. Second Officer Slog. It's peak Star Trek. Star Trek. The Amory score. Hey, Claudio, stop. I don't want to think about this, Claudio. Novel not new. How, how many endings are we looking at for this? One? I th- I think there are one ending. <laughs> okay, so I think we'll probably be able to see all of them each. Yeah, no, I think so. <laughs> and Fireside Friends. Thirty-seven is the age of the fictional character that I just made up. Oh, uh, what's their backstory? <laughs> They're thirty-seven. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> if you like what you hear, back us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/AbnormalMapping. There, you can gain access to exclusive essays and listen to our backer-exclusive podcast, The Great Gundam Project. Where me and Jackson watch every Gundam show ever made. Admiral Mapping, a podcast network for the rest of us.